open your Bibles. We're looking at Mark 9. Mark chapter 9. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. At this significant event that we call the, the transfiguration of Christ. We're looking at Mark 9, verses 1 through 13. Mark 9, 1 through 13. Well, a few years ago, our family decided to go on summer vacation to Michigan. That's the, the state up north for all of you who are overly serious about sports. We wanted a vacation at the beach uh, because in some ways beach vacations are just easier with young kids. We didn't want to have to fly. We didn't want to have to drive too far. And so Lake Michigan seemed like a good choice. Uh, we got a little cottage on the lake there. It wasn't too long of a drive. And that was a good thing because the drive, as I remember it, was sort of miserable. Uh, one of our kids was uh, still a baby at the time. And I think there were a few straight hours there where uh, he just screamed at the top of his little lungs. He was inconsolable. Uh, and so the drive felt, you know, sort of, just it felt much longer. It was a shoulders tense, eyes bloodshot and twitching kind of drive, if you know what I'm saying. But our arrival to the old musky lake town of uh, Muskegon was something I think I'll never forget. You know, the town itself, it wasn't much to look at as we drove through it, but I'll, I'll never forget when we were driving up this, this hill and there was a, a line of thick wood at the top, a line of, of, of forest or thick woods at the top, and, and as we neared the top, we, we came round this little bend into a, a, a clearing in the woods as the, the road led over the hill overlooking Lake Michigan. And if you were in the car when our eyes met that scene, you would have heard a collective audible gasp from the whole family because what we beheld was, was glorious. The, the sun was, looked like it was taking a dive into Lake Michigan and it was a strong, bright, yellow-orange sun shining at full blaze, it seemed, and and the light of the sun was reflecting and, 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 and uh, twinkling off of the waters as the waters, up until the waters gave way to beautiful white sand. I mean, we could, we could hardly look at it because of its brightness, but we, we couldn't take our eyes off of it because of its brilliance. Well, three of Jesus' disciples have an experience like that, only better in our text this morning. My prayer is that we come to experience something like it this morning as well, because if we have eyes to see it, we behold something beautiful, something radiant, something life-changingly glorious here in Mark 9, 1 through 13. And so it's with great relish and reverence that I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God as Mark writes it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 for them, we pray for ourselves now. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may behold our hope, our Christ, his love, his glory, so that we might be transformed by him from one degree of glory to the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as we saw last week, immediately before the events of our passage this morning, Jesus was teaching his disciples about the nature of his identity and calling as the Messiah. And we're on the heels of Peter having just confessed Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. But you'll remember that in Israel in those days, the, the messianic expectations were of an exalted Messiah who would usher in a victorious kingdom, not necessarily a humiliated Messiah crucified at the hands of sinful men. And so Jesus tells his disciples plainly about his coming crucifixion, that he's not only the Son of Man, the exalted Son of Man of Daniel 7, but he's also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And not only that, he also called his disciples to pick up their own crosses and to follow him in the way of the cross. But then the events of our text this morning seem to want to communicate to Christ's disciples and to Mark's readers that While the the way of the cross is laid upon Christ, he is still the glorious Son of God who will be exalted as the Son of Man. He is that Messiah that they confessed him to be. Yes, he has come in humility, and yes, he has come to be crucified, but even still, he is the glorious one. He will be exalted in the end. The Lord makes a clearing of the woods to to give us a glimpse of glory. He he lifts up the veil some, so to speak, and shows something of the glorious splendor and radiance of Christ so 
that we would know who he is and rejoice and tremble. The big idea I want to explore here is that the the transfiguration unveils something of the glory of Jesus to us. The transfiguration unveils something of the glory of Jesus to to us. And, And here's part of what it unveils. That Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Supreme One. And Jesus is the Suffering One. First here, see how Jesus is the Son of Man. If you look at verse 1, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this this verse has been notoriously difficult to place. All the commentators are going to struggle and wrestle with if this should go with the previous passage of Scripture, if it should go with this passage of Scripture. And as we try to figure it out, uh, whether it goes with the previous passage or this one, we we really don't have to choose. It's a, a, a wonderful transitional verse. It serves as a wonderful transition between the two passages. And we should most certainly read it in light of these two passages. Some have gotten way off track here with this verse in assuming that Jesus was talking about his return at the end of the age and the consummation of his kingdom. And that would be a problem for us, of course, because if that's what Jesus meant, then he was wrong because he didn't return in, uh, it, to consummate his kingdom in the generation of his disciples. But that's not what he was talking about. Remember the context here. We just saw Jesus explain to his disciples that their messianic expectations were not exactly correct. They didn't have the full picture. They thought that the Messiah would bring the kingdom in victory and exaltation right off the bat. They didn't expect him to come in humility and to be crucified by Roman soldiers. They expected the Daniel 7 glorified son of man who's in who's enthroned upon the throne of heaven and granted a kingdom and a dominion and a power that will never end. But Jesus tells them, yes, I am the son of man of Daniel 7, but you should expect crucifixion. Expect me to die. Expect me to be betrayed and to suffer and to be scourged and to be tortured on a Roman cross. And then here, as it were, in in Mark 9, 1, he says, but the glory will come. You see my kingdom, you will see my kingdom come in power. And they did, didn't they? They saw Christ raised from the dead and glorified with a resurrected body. And furthermore, they they saw what Daniel envisioned in Daniel 7. If you look at Acts chapter 1, we see Christ ascend to heaven on the clouds, which is the earthly perspective of what took place in heaven in Daniel 7 when the Son of Man received his kingdom. What happened in Daniel 7? The Son of Man came on the clouds... And he was seated on the throne. The ascension of the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel 7. There and then, the risen Christ was seated upon the throne of heaven and earth. He received an everlasting global kingdom from his Father. He now rules over all people and over all heaven and earth, and he will forever. We've seen scripturally that that day has come. And Jesus here, before that day came, wanted to assure his disciples that that day was indeed coming. And he wanted them to know that they would see his resurrection and his ascension, that they would see the exaltation of the Son of Man. But then back to this particular moment in Mark's gospel, what we find here in the transfiguration is a foretaste and a, and a snapshot of that reality. It's, it's, a, it's a foretaste of that coming attraction. It's, it's like a, a movie trailer of what is to come. It's almost like an initial fulfillment 
of Jesus' promise here. He tells them they will see the kingdom of God come in power. And ultimately, they did in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. But in the, transform- the transfiguration, it's like a movie trailer of what will eventually come to a theater near you. This is a preview of the future glory and exaltation of Christ as the Son of Man. And you can imagine, you can imagine what a comfort this must have been to his disciples here. Well, he'd just been telling them about the, the cross and, and his cross and, and the crosses that they must pick up to follow him. He just told them that the the cross of salvation was going to be laid upon him, but that they must also pick up their crosses of discipleship to to be his followers. They're to pick up their own crosses and follow Christ. And the way of the cross for for the disciples here actually led to much suffering and, and, and even death. A lot of them, history tells us. We're all killed for the name of Christ, save John, who was exiled to the barren island of Patmos. They were destined for the way of the cross and lives of humility and suffering. But the transfiguration of Jesus here showed them that glory lay on the other side of the cross. It was true for Christ. It was true for them. And beloved, it's true for us as well. Glory lays on the other side of the cross for us. If we pick up our crosses and follow Jesus now, glory and exaltation awaits us on the other side. Our lives, our lives may be nothing much to look at now. Our lives may be marked by so much ordinariness. Or, or, or even more, our lives may be marked by so much suffering and pain, so much humiliation and, and hurt, so much distress, so much difficulty, struggles with besetting sins and indwelling sins, so struggles with, with physical matters and, and sickness and all this. But know this. If you are in Christ, glory and exaltation is coming for you. Christ has been exalted. He has been raised and he has ascended. He has been glorified. And we have this promise for us as his followers that where he is and what he is, we will be also. Philippians 3.21 says that when we see him, it will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 1 John 3, 2 says, Behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Our lives may be marked by lowliness and humility and crosses now, but glory and exaltation is awaiting us. A crown is coming. This is why, friends, that Christians have so often been able to face death with such courage, such peace, such resilience. You you probably notice that that I actually tell you a lot of stories up here about Christians dying and being martyred, and you probably think that's kind of weird. I do that partly because, you know, I'm convicted that part of my job as a pastor is to prepare you to die well. That's part of my job to prepare you to die well when the time comes. I want to equip you to live well as a disciple of Christ, but I want to equip you to, to die well when the time comes as a disciple of Christ. Because the reality of it is that all of us are going to face death unless we're here when the Lord returns. It's inescapable. But you can face death with peace and joy and courage because you can know for certain that death does not have the final word for you, Christian resurrection and glory and exaltation as we see that in Christ. 
We see that in the transfiguration here as it serves as a preview of Christ's coming glory. And so we're free to suffer well and to die well on this side of that glory. But then we not only see that he's the son of man, will be exalted in the future. We also see here that he's the son of God who is glorious in himself and who has been for all of eternity past. We see something of his intrinsic glory here, not just his future exaltation. His glory was in some ways hidden in his humanity in the incarnation, but here we see it uncovered in a way. we, We sing in our beloved Christmas hymn by Charles Wesley, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Well, here, something of his, his deity is, is almost unveiled, as it were. It's almost like, you know, if you've seen The Wizard of Oz. Have you, have you guys seen that? Is that a movie that people see anymore? I don't know. This is a horrible illustration, maybe. I don't know. If you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz, when they come to this great wizard at the end, he's all glorious and dreadful and he's got a booming voice and he's, he's, you know, blinding light and there's this smoke that emanates from him. They tremble at him. That is until Dorothy's dog kind of goes and leads them behind the curtain. And, and when they look behind the curtain, they see nothing but a little old man who through various forms of technology is, is making himself look like this big glorious wizard. Well, the opposite happens here. Here, what Christ appears to be is just an ordinary man clothed in lowliness and humility, and in a way he was. But in a way here, God lifts up the curtain so that we can see his dreadful glory and splendor and brilliance. Look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. You find them on a mountain, which is fitting because this was indeed a mountaintop experience, if there ever was one. And many have located this uh, at Mount Tabor. There's actually like a, 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 a chapel built there to commemorate the transfiguration, but that was probably actually not where it was. You know, we just saw them in, in Caesarea Philippi. That would have been way, way far away from there, too far for this event to have actually taken place there. Uh, Last we saw them, they were in Caesarea Philippi. This event probably takes place on Mount Hermon. It's a very tall mountain in in Caesarea Philippi. And as we find in Luke, Jesus went up here to pray one night. And he took three of his disciples with him. And while they're there praying in the dark of night, something extraordinary happened. A light began to shine in the darkness. And when they looked, they saw that the light is actually coming from Jesus. It says Jesus was transfigured before them. The word translated as, as transfigured means to be transformed. The word is actually metamorpho, which you recognize, I'm sure. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. And yet this is, this is not what we usually think of when we think of the, the word metamorphosis. When we hear the word metamorphosis, what we usually think of is one one thing transforming into another thing. We think of like a, a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly or a tadpole becoming a frog, that kind of thing. But it's clear that's not what happened here. Jesus didn't all of a sudden become something he's not. Rather, what he has been in eternity past and what he is is in some measure revealed. His glorious divine nature began to shine through even and through his humble human nature. 
Look at verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. He shone with bright white light. It's not just that he was wearing white clothing so that they could sort of make out his figure in the darkness. Jesus exuded this blinding whiteness. Have you ever looked at the snow on a a sunny winter day and the the light shines off of the snow almost to the point where it's like you have to squint and you can't quite look at it. It's so bright. This would be similar to that. It's so white and bright that it was beyond natural explanation. It wasn't just like he got his robes bleached really well, as Mark says here. We know in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light, as we read earlier. 1 John 1 tells us that God is light. The sun has, has nothing on him. He is the light from which all light comes. And this text would undoubtedly bring to mind for any Hebrew, and should bring to mind for us, Moses encountering God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. When he went up on the mountain, Moses encountered God's presence in such a magnificent way. And and what happened is he came down off the mountain, Exodus 34, 29, because such light emanates from God, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. His face was, was so bright that Moses had to put a veil over his face when he interacted with the Israelites. He encountered the God who dwells in unapproachable light in such a glorious way that he reflected that light in return. But then notice here that in Jesus' transfiguration, it's it's different. Moses' light was a reflecting light. He reflected the light of God like, like the moon reflects the light of the sun at night. But Jesus shines like the sun itself. Notice notice he's radiant with light, not reflecting light. As we just read earlier in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is radiant. His light shines from within, from himself, from who he is in his resplendent glory. Jesus is not here like Moses receiving and reflecting light from God. He is Yahweh who from himself is radiant. You know, in this event, something takes place that is so dear to the heart of Christ. If you you ever want to hear someone's heart, their deepest desires, their their wants, listen to their prayers. And it's no different with Jesus. If, If you want to know his heart, look at his prayers in the Gospels. And specifically as it relates here, look at John 17, 24, where Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus wants his people to behold his glory, to see how wondrous, how effulgent, how radiant, how excellent he is. He he delights in what's taking place here in Mark 9. You know, if, if I could choose any one biblical event to just be a fly on the wall for, I think this would be a top contender. I wish I could get in a time machine and just go back and and be present for this. 
And yet in some ways on this side of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have something so uniquely glorious to enjoy now. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. It's one of the few places, there's only four places, and this is one of the few places that we find this word metamorpho in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's not talking when he uses the word about the transfiguration of Jesus, but the transformation of his disciples. And it explains how our transformation as Christ's disciples takes place, our metamorphosis as believers takes place, as we behold the glory of Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Our metamorphosis as believers takes place as we behold the glory of Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit. So, of course, in this stage of the history of redemption, we don't, we don't see the glory of Christ physically with our eyeballs. But, Paul says, by the Spirit, we've been given this, this spiritual sense We've been given this, this spiritual sight of the glory of Jesus, which is so precious and valuable by the Holy Spirit. The eyes of our hearts, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened to behold and see the glory of Christ. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We, by the Holy Spirit, have the gift of being able to see something of the glory of Christ. And Paul says this is actually how we're transformed and changed into Christ-likeness here and now. He says if you want to grow in the Christian life, if you want to change, if you want to be transformed more and more into Christ like this, here's what you do. Look at the glory of Jesus. Look at his excellence, his, his greatness, his splendor, his grace, his kindness, his person, his heart, his work. You know, I, I wonder if, if you realize this, the law commands, rules, me getting up here and giving you a bunch of things to do, that doesn't change you in and of itself. It may make you a little more moral. It may make you a little bit better behaved. But that's not what we're after in the Christian life. What we're after is the renovation of our entire person after the likeness of Christ. And Paul says that comes by beholding Christ. You become like what you behold and therefore, the Christian life is all about beholding Christ, not, not behavior modification, not having a set of rules to follow. The Christian life is about beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. And so here's some application for you, if we could call it that. Behold Jesus. Behold him. Which I know is, is it's admittedly more complicated than it sounds. The fact of the matter is our spiritual senses, as we've been looking at in Mark over the last several weeks, are often so dull and distracted with so many other things that the glory of Christ often takes a back seat if it's in the car at all. It might be in the trunk. Augustine once said that God has so many 
good gifts to give us, but our hands are often too full to receive them. Well, the same can be said about our spiritual sight. God would reveal so much wonder and glory to us in His Son, but our eyes are so often just set on other things. Jared Wilson, in his great book, The Imperfect Disciple, writes this. He says, Truly, I think one reason we aren't captivated by Christ's glory is because we have a diminished capacity to be captivated by anything big. We are preoccupied with small things. And in fact, we somehow have an inverted sense of measurement in that big things seem to us small or familiar, while small things become big to us, at least in terms of our time and attention and energy. It is the funhouse mirror effect of daily living in a consumeristic culture where we are inundated with all kinds of media and now even carry that media around in our pockets and find ourselves pulling that media out more and more often because we sense that there will be something newer, more vital, more exciting, more entertaining, more applicable to our situation somewhere among its endless clicks and pages while Christ seems so one note, so familiar. Our screens give us a constant stream of things to look at, but very little to see. If you're like me, you're frightened by how much that sometimes seems to describe you. You can take heart. Because Christ is in the business of correcting our eyesight. Remember how he's correcting the eyesight of the disciples here? He corrects ours today by His Spirit. If you stay with Jesus, as the disciples do here, if you would keep looking at Him as they do here, if you would keep directing and redirecting and redirecting your gaze at Christ and His Word, you will see glory. Gaze at Him until you see glory. Fight to behold him, and you will see how radiant he is, and you will be ravished, and you will be changed, and you will be transformed. You will be metamorphized, metamorphosized. We should say that he really is worthy of beholding. He's really worth looking at. He's really worth fighting and gazing upon. And this event really underlines that point for us as well, as we see next how Jesus is the supreme one. Here, God the Father proclaims the supremacy of Jesus over all. We find that being unveiled, being revealed, as we see that Jesus and his disciples are not alone on the mountain. Elijah and Moses have appeared, and and they have a conversation with Jesus. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, this is amazing. I'm sure that Peter and James and John were flabbergasted here. For one, because Moses, he died, he was in heaven. And technically, Elijah didn't die, he just got taken up to heaven without death. But So these guys aren't presently normally on earth. This is strange. I'm sure that it, it also flabbergasted them because these two loomed large in the sight of Israel. I mean, the disciples, they were good Jewish boys. They probably would have put Moses and Elijah and their you know, Mount Rushmore favorite prophets They probably had Elijah and Moses posters hanging up in their bedrooms. But moreover, the significance here is not just found in how much these men loomed large in Israel. It's it's that they represent something. They represent the law and the prophets. 
Moses was the one through whom God delivered the law. And Elijah was was a preeminent, possibly one of the most significant prophets. And the law and the prophets was often language used in Israel to just say the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't call it the Old Testament then. They just called it the law and the prophets. And a temptation for the disciples might have been at this time to see Jesus as, as merely a continuation of business as usual, a continuation of the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. And in one sense, he does carry the, the story of the Old Testament forward, but in another sense, he surpasses and he transforms everything, as we've seen in Mark already. And so we should not see him as, as just another Moses or another Elijah or just another prophetical figure as significant as those men were. Yet Peter, he doesn't necessarily seem to get that yet. Look at verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here, duh. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. It's best when you don't know what to say to just not say anything at all. Peter, bless his heart. He's not learned this lesson yet. He wants to set up three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what these tents and this desire to to construct them meant, the significance of that. I think it's safe to say that, at least in, in, in one sense, this signifies that Peter wanted to hang out like this for a while. He doesn't want this moment to be over. He wants Moses and Elijah to stay and hang out for a bit, which is understandable. But another thing that Peter's words here seem to communicate are that he he seems to view Moses and Elijah as being in the same league as Jesus. One tent for each seems to imply that these men are deserving of the same honor, similar honor, which completely misses who Jesus is. You know, if, if Moses and Elijah appeared next to me and someone wanted to start a Moses, Elijah, and Garrison club, like, I would bow out because these men, I'm not in the same league as them. They're NFL, I'm like little peewee football sort of thing. But putting them in the same league as Jesus is entirely inappropriate because his glory surpasses theirs insofar as the glory of the Grand Canyon surpasses a mere photo of it. So Peter's words are entirely inappropriate, and God the Father makes that abundantly clear. Look at verse 7. As a cloud overshadowed them. So a cloud descends upon the mountain, and if, if you try to imagine it in your mind's eye, you can imagine Jesus, Moses, Elijah there, and they disappear from the disciples' sight because a, a thick fog appears and, 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 and uh, hides them from sight. And as that happened, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He is unique. This is God's beloved son. And then the cloud lifted, and suddenly, looking around, they saw no longer, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. James Edwards says about this text, Elijah and Moses, the greatest figures of the Old Testament have vanished in relation to Jesus. They have no permanent standing. Jesus alone remains. This is emblematic of the reality that Jesus is the center in summation of the scriptures of the Old Testament. It was all leading up to him. 
It was all given in order to reveal and be fulfilled by him. Indeed, we should say that that the scriptures were given to the end that we might see Jesus. That's the reason we have Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. It's so that we might know and see and treasure Jesus as the supreme son of God. Friends, I exhorted you earlier to behold Jesus In essence, what I was telling you is to pour over the scriptures, to read them, to study, to meditate on them, to inwardly digest them, but also that you might see and behold Jesus. And perhaps I should say that we're we're a church, you're a church who rightly treasures the scriptures, many of you. Part of what I love so much about you and admire so much about you is that you love the Bible. You want to study it and learn it and hear it preached, and rightly so. But the Bible is not an end in and of itself. It has been given by God through the prophets so that we might see and behold Jesus. It is, as George Herbert once put it, a looking glass given so that we might see through it the the Christ in his glory. Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, 39 and 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You must never treat the Bible as an end in and of itself. Bible knowledge is not a worthy end in and of itself. We possess the scripture so that we might see and behold Christ as the supremely worthy one, as the Savior and Son of God. Jesus is the supreme one. Look at me lastly and briefly. I'm going to end this in three minutes. Look with me lastly that Jesus is the suffering servant, the suffering one. It's probably next morning. They're headed down the mountain, and then as verse 9, they were coming down the mountain. Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There's one of these charges to secrecy. And Jesus is trying to protect against the rumors and misunderstandings spreading amongst the people. And and it seems that the disciples here, they didn't tell anyone, verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now remember, they didn't necessarily have categories yet for the first coming of Jesus and the kingdom of God as having come in a state of humility and suffering. They didn't have categories for an already not yet kingdom or a kingdom that comes in two stages, the first coming and then the second coming and the end. They thought the kingdom would come in one fell swoop, that the Messiah would be exalted, that the dead would be raised, that the kingdom of peace would prevail over all opposition in one single coming. But here, Jesus is talking about his own resurrection from the dead as a singular event somewhat separate from a general resurrection of the dead later on. And that's confusing for the disciples. Their timeline is getting all messed up. That's why this can be sort of confusing, because they're working on a different timeline. They're trying to work things out, and we can see the timeline a little more clearly now. Additionally, the disciples believed that Elijah was going to come as a forerunner to the exalted Messiah. And they got this from Malachi 4.5, where the prophet announced the word of the Lord, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers of their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers. And so with that, many in Israel interpreted those words rigidly and literally. They thought that Elijah would come as a forerunner to the arrival of the Messiah. And with that, 
the disciples' timeline again here. It's getting all messed up. So having just saw Elijah, they're confused. And they, they ask, Lord, why did the scribes say that Elijah must first come? Like he was just here, but he left. Shouldn't he stick around? And with the complexity of, of these questions and their confusion, Jesus tells them that first, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Now in this, he's not saying that a literal Elijah will literally come in the way that many understood. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. You look at the same event in Matthew 6.13, you find Matthew adds a bit of commentary to this, saying, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. That's made clear by what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So what happened to John the Baptist earlier in Mark's gospel? He was beheaded. They did to him whatever they pleased. And we know that, that there were remarkable similarities between John the Baptist and the prophet Elijah. Not least of which was that John came preaching in Israel in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came to, to restore things by turning the hearts of the people. He came to restore things with this message of repentance, turning Israel in repentance and faith. And yet his ministry was not one of glory like so many in Israel thought the forerunner's ministry would be. It was a ministry of suffering. He was beheaded. He came in the spirit of Elijah and he suffered. He came in the way of the cross and was beheaded by sinful men. And Jesus says that the same is true of the ministry of the Messiah here comes in the way of the cross first, in the way of suffering first. In verse 12, Jesus says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Again, he returns to the message of the cross. He, he will be exalted. He is glorious. He is supreme, as is made clear in his transfiguration. But he wants his disciples to know that first, in his first coming, he came primarily to suffer. He came to be treated with contempt. He came to be tortured, to be crucified, to be executed on a Roman cross for the sins of his people. On another mountain, later in Mark's gospel, Jesus' glory is revealed, but in a different way. Not in the shining splendor of his exaltation. Not in the unveiling of his eternal luminous divinity but in his gracious condescension and humiliation for us. There his love and mercy and grace and kindness and meekness as the Son of Man was revealed. There his, his generosity and goodness was revealed. There he showed us that, that while our sins are great, they pale in comparison to his mercy. There he showed us that that our sins are but grains of sand next to the mountains of his mercy and kindness. There the glory of Jesus is unveiled in a way that it nowhere else is or could be. There we behold something so beautiful, so radiant, so life-changingly glorious that the eternal Son of God loves us and wants to be with us and wants us to see his glory forever. There we behold not just the exalted Son of Man, 
and the divine Son of God, but we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who dies in our place on a cross. We behold his broken body and shed blood. We behold the Christ. And so it's with great reverence and relish. In a moment, we're going to invite you to behold this very reality in the bread and in the cup so that we might rejoice and tremble in who our Savior is for us. Before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Lord Jesus, you are the glorious Son of Man. You are the glorious Son of God. You are the Supreme One. You are the Suffering One who came as the Lamb of God to take away our sins. We bow down before you in awe of your majesty. We are sinful, we are broken, but you love us and you came for us. We thank you for that. We pray that as we partake of the bread and the cup now, that you would give us eyes to see your glory. Give us glimpses of your glory in new and fresh ways so that we might be transformed by one degree of glory to the next. So that we might reflect your light to a world of darkness. So that we might reflect you as the moon does the sun at night. We pray in Jesus' name.